walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 58. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. Hello. It's been a while. When I last plugged in the microphone, it was peak COVID. Say what you will about a pandemic, but being locked down is great for hobbies. For a podcast especially, there was never a more convenient time to schedule and record interviews than when everyone was shut in their homes. Obviously, the gradual reopening of the world has been a net positive. It's funny, though. Maybe this is true for you and your work, but going back to school and the classroom, back to quote-unquote normal, was equal parts awesome and exhausting. Once that routine was disrupted for a couple of years, it was hard to settle back into a rhythm, and it felt like a long process of getting our legs back under us. The bigger reason that the pandemic ultimately delayed the return of this podcast, though, is that it provided time for writing that I rarely get during the school year. The expected part of that was my new Cicerone guidebook on the Via Podiensis in France. That book was delayed a year, as it wasn't until September 2021 that I was able to get back to France and rewalk everything, and then we sprinted through the production process. The unexpected part of that was a second book that I wrote during the pandemic, a three-month burst of research, outlining, and writing that was distinct from anything else I've ever done. I've only written guidebooks before that. This was different. At a time when I couldn't go on pilgrimage, I wanted to reflect on why I keep getting drawn back, why so many of us keep getting drawn back. The result is Pilgrimage, a medieval cure for modern ills, which finally released at the beginning of January. I'll talk more about that in an upcoming episode. And with all of that done, I could finally return to podcasting. I've been working for the past month on scheduling and carrying out as many conversations as possible, with the goal of settling into a routine of weekly new episodes over the next few months. There may be some bumps in the road, but so far, so good. We're on track. Today's episode is a longer conversation with Bibi Barami, who previously spoke with me in episode 46 about her Camino Frances guidebook. This time around, we're talking about her latest book, a personal count of three different pilgrimage journeys, which is equal parts mystery and memoir. I'm sorry for the lag. One of the coolest things about this whole podcasting experience is that people actually listen to this and actually appreciate it. I don't take that for granted, and I wish I could churn these out more consistently. But it's good to be back. Bibi Barami is an anthropologist, essayist, and storyteller. She's the author of Moon's Guidebook to the Camino Frances, titled Camino de Santiago, Sacred Sites, Historic Villages, Local Food and Wine, which has been recently updated. Her other titles include The Spiritual Traveler Spain, Café Neanderthal, Excavating Our Past in One of Europe's Most Ancient Places, 
and Café Oc, a nomad's tale of magic, mystery, and finding home in the Dordogne of southwestern France. Her most recent publication, one with an absolutely gorgeous cover, is The Way of the Wild Goose, and I was thrilled to talk with her about it in the following conversation. Well, let's start here, Vivi. You have a new edition. We'll talk mostly about your your other new book, the new new book, <laughs> The Way of the Wild Goose. But you have a new edition of your Moon Guide book to the Camino de Santiago. And so I just wanted to ask you briefly about that. It's a particular yeah. experience to be producing a new edition of a guidebook in the middle of COVID. And so <laughs> don't, I'm Don't you know it? <laughs> yes, and I'm wondering if you had any big headlines or insights emerge on the state of the Camino Francais transitioning out of COVID. What did you notice about it as you went about making those updates? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The whole full sweep was updating the guidebook for its second edition during COVID and then being back on the Camino this spring and summer and seeing the post-COVID, you know, flourishing. You know, what was interesting is my guidebook publisher, Moon Avalon, which is from Ashet, they they actually approached me and they said, we're really not updating many of our international titles right now yeah. in the middle of a pandemic, but we want to update the Camino de Santiago guidebook because readers are, are still, they're, they're kind of asking for it, you know, <laughs> and and it was really interesting. And I had a friend say, well, it was kind of like, you know, when you buy seed catalogs in the winter or, you know, <laughs> so people were planting the seeds and, and that was really beautiful. And they said, but we don't want you to take any chances, you know, and, and be on the ground and, and go there. Can you do this remotely? And by the time they had asked me this question, I had already been for several weeks in touch with people on the Camino and the Camino Frances asking all of them, how are you guys doing? I mean, this is a cottage industry. People mm -hmm. are like hand to mouth kind of, you know, it's really a, a very basic economy that depends on the weekly inboring of pilgrims. Yeah. So we were all in touch and we were talking and I, I think I, I must have had over 800 conversations in some form, you know, Zoom, email, just checking in with everyone. And then when I, I told the publisher, yeah, I actually think Everyone wants to talk more right now than they ever have. <laughs> it was really amazing because people started telling me stories that they never had time for before. You know, when I was right there in the albergue or at the cafe or at the monument, they, they were just like, there were so many other things to do. But now they were in full lockdown and they were like, did I tell you why my grandmother started this albergue? Or did I tell you that I was born in this house? You know, or did I tell you there's an archaeological dig in the basement of this <laughs> albergue? And I'm like, well, no, 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 tell me more. So all these stories started coming out and it was a great way to update the guidebook, but also just feel the deeper pulse of the Camino and what an incredible place it is, you know, the wow. whole road. And I got stories, there were people who were really wondering if they were going to survive. And there were people who were saying, we're going to find a way to survive. And while we're doing that, we're going to completely renovate the bathrooms and whitewash, you know. And so there were a lot of renovations going on and updates. So it was those stories that were coming up and that hope that kept springing eternal on the Camino. And, mm -hmm. and even the most dire stories of survival, it turns out those people survived and they're flourishing right now because the Camino is back in full force. And I'm sure you discovered that for yourself. 
it, it's that that the, the incredible story of rebirth that the Camino gives us, and it happened to the Camino. So that was kind of what I learned in this whole update process. It really was invigorating to get back on the trail, right? And to to know that there is another side yeah. of all of this that we've gone through over the last few years. Absolutely. There is some of you know, it was really fun too. I would ask some of the locals, it was like, okay, I can't be on the trail right now, but could you just tell me for your, you know, 25 kilometers <laughs> of it that you're, you know, in that orbit? could you just let me know what's going on with the trail? Has it changed? Is it, and they'd come back and he's like, well, there's weeds, there's weeds on it, but you know, that's it. Oh, and there are more wild animals. And <laughs> so that was kind of cool. That was like my school. The geese took over the campus as you'll be pleased to know. They're, uh, they're <laughs> quite territorial. Um, yes. <laughs> so is the new edition of your book then like 2,500 pages uh, as a consequence of all but, this? You know, almost. It increased by a few dozen more pages, but it, it's funny because we, we kept saying we need to keep get it thinner. And the publisher was just like, no, these are good stories. And these need to be a part of, you know, what people are reading you know, on the trail. So, but it's still the same thickness and weight. And I think they just managed to find, you know, I don't know, lighter ink and lighter paper, but it still has a nice quality feel to it. So it's pretty cool. I keep thinking there should be like the director's cut that's the Kindle version or the ebook <laughs> version, you know, or page limit doesn't matter as much, but I think yeah. that's, it's complicated. It is. Boy, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about geese then. So your book, The Way of the Wild Goose, would you characterize it as a memoir? Is that a fair? I would. I mean, it's it's subtitled as Three Pilgrimages Following Geese Stars and Hunches on the Camino de Santiago. So it's a an account of three particular pilgrimages, dedicated pilgrimages that I took out of the many that I've made that was really focused on this medieval mystery of why does the goose keep appearing? Why does it keep cropping up, you know, in conversation, in literature, in, you know, Romanesque art and in folklore? And it is in part a memoir, memoir of my pilgrimages and this kind of detective story of trying to figure out what is, what is the goose on the Camino and why is it such a has such a deep roots on the Camino where did it come from and and in some ways it's my own memoir but I was just thinking the other day it's really like the Camino has a chance to write its own memoir too because it's really digging deep into some of the deeper roots of this pilgrimage road and so yes it is a memoir Tell me about your first encounter with a goose and how it set you off on this mystery chase <laughs> right as associated with the camino the first encounter with the goose was with spanish and french pilgrims you know every now and then i'd meet a pilgrim as you do you know walking on the trail or in an albergue who would open up and say i'm following a spiritual path and i'm following signs it's an initiatory path. And I would, I would ask, well, that's, you know, interesting. Tell me more, you know, it's, and I, I just assumed, well, everyone's on that on the Camino, but they're like, no, well, you know, you, you really look for signs, you know, more than arrows and scallop shells. And so like, what kind of signs? And they're like, like, like the footprint of the goose. And when I would ask for more illumination on that, they were like, well, you can only really, you know, it through doing it. It's an initiatory path, you know, so you got to become an initiate. And it would become this sort of mystery around it. There was only so much they would tell me, but it kept cropping up. I kept meeting every now and then, a French or a Spanish pilgrim especially. And then I started noticing, well, okay, you know, 
there are places on the Camino that have goose names in them. You know, Montes de Oca, Mountains mm-hmm. of the Goose, or uh, El Ganso, the Gander, you know, and from Anser. But then uh, what really nailed it was when I arrived on the Plaza de Santiago in Logroño, in La Rioja, and right there on the Camino in the middle of this historic city and wine country is this huge square and inlaid in the square is this game of the goose board game, human scale size. Like, so you could use your body as a game piece and it's 63 squares. It's this sort of labyrinthine style board game of chance and it has geese on it. So it's a game of the goose. But when I learned more about it, because I was thinking, what is the game of the goose doing in the Plaza de Santiago on St. James square, right next to St. James church, the Iglesia de Santiago. And the more I did, Doug, and the more I learned, it was because people associate the Camino with the game of the goose. It's a metaphor. Mm. The game of the goose is a metaphor for the Camino, and both are a metaphor for life. And all of it is a metaphor for a a deeper spiritual path, a path of greater awareness and presence, really, is another way to translate, you know, what is spiritual, you know, in, in this context. That's when I just thought, I cannot seem to let go of this goose thing every time it shows up. And I had already noticed in some literature, especially in French and in Spanish, there were some writers who would write about following the, the footprint of the goose and walking the Camino oca por oca, you know, just like in, it's, you know, goose by goose, you know, step by step, just like the board game. You know, you, you throw dice, you, you take a chance, you get out on the road into the unknown. Sometimes you land on a lucky square, which in the game is it marked by a goose. And on the Camino, it's marked by the kind person who gives you an orange or a bottle of water, (laughs) you know, a place to sleep. But all these sorts of things, just I thought, I really want to dedicate more and more systematically look into what is it about the goose. Mm. But it really began there with those pilgrims. And as you set forth across France and Spain in pursuit of the goose, you tell in your book the different encounters and discoveries that you make along the way. Could you describe one or two notable goose encounters that you had across these different pilgrimages that stood out to you that helped reinforce that you were really onto something? Yeah, one was in France on the Arles route. Uh, when I, that's one of the pilgrimages of the three. It's really deep in goose country. And what I mean by goose country is it's traditional territory. Really, you know, parts of northern Spain and southern France are all engaged in a goose economy. I mean, everyone's probably heard of confit and foie gras. And, you know, so these are traditional territories where, where geese reign, both domestic and wild. But in the Arles route is right there by the Pyrenees and deep, deep, deep in what I call goose country with also a lot of rich folklore that involves uh, goose-footed goddesses that make their way across the Pyrenees into Northern Spain as well. And I was really looking for the signs. This was the first pilgrimage. I was like, I'm gonna keep my eyes open. I'm gonna be like these pilgrims looking for the signs. And wasn't really picking up too many signs until I walked into the village of Morlas, the, the Romanesque church there has the west entrance with the arches, you know, the the rainbow style, you know, tiers of arches. One of the middle arches of, of this five-tier archway was just ducks. It was 13 ducks going up one direction and 13 ducks going up the other direction. And the ones in the middle at the peak of the arch were kissing. And by then I knew enough about stonemasons from the Middle Ages that they did equate geese and ducks as a very similar symbol, symbolic. They, they represented the same things as migratory waterfowl that tend to look after each other and 
you know, move around together, much like pilgrims. I, I just stood there and I thought, that's just wild. 26 ducks on this archway. And by then I also knew that in the game of the goose, there are 13 geese. This is a magic number. And so there's 13 ducks going up one direction and 13 the other direction. And I, I knew I had something there. And when I dug into it, I discovered that local parish priests about 100 years earlier also wondered about the ducks and had written about them and confirmed this association of ducks as this symbolic animal, along with geese, on the Camino de Santiago, who represent pilgrims, who represent a spiritual journey, who represent a creature that takes risks on the unknown by migrating before other birds will. You know, like as Aldo Leopold writes in um, the Sand Country Almanac, that geese will be already migrating south before any of the other birds are willing to wager on spring <laughs> beginning. <laughs> and so that was one. And another was in the Montes de Oca, right there in Via Franca, you know, the mountains of the goose, right before you, you, you reach Burgos. Mm -hmm. And you have to pass through these mountains named after the goose in the town of Via Franca. There's a little mini pilgrimage. It's just, you know, like a couple kilometers off the Camino. And it's a local sacred pilgrimage devoted to their own local saint and Madonna. So, and, and the saint, I, I forget his name. It sounds like a good Visigothic name. The Madonna is Our Lady the Goose. And I, I thought, wow, I'm going to check this one out. You know, and I made the little pilgrimage and I asked locals about her. And, and she's at a holy spring, at a holy fall, really, of the Oka River, which is really a creek. But, but this is an old holy spring in local lore. And the more I dug into local folklore, I discovered they just refer to her as our mother, the goose, and, and as an earth goddess, and as Mother Mary. Mm. That there's all these layers from, you know, pre-Christian to Christian uh, meaning on it. And that's when I started seeing that the folklore I had been looking at, these waterfowl-footed goddesses that were pre-Christian, that are really quite abundant in southwestern France and northern Spain, that there was, an, there was a connection, you know, and a lot of them, their places were then taken over by uh, chapels devoted to Mary. Mm. So that was also a significant aha moment. It's like, okay, there's some syncretism going on here. It is really fascinating. And so as you continued, you you ran into more and more encounters with the goose and then also with, with Mary. And yeah. you've, you've already touched a little bit on on spirituality, religion, syncretism. Yeah. I want to talk about that in more detail. Yeah. Would you be open to describing like how you conceive of your own beliefs at this moment in time? Sure. And I would say it was a part of my beliefs in this moment in time have a lot to do with the experiences I had by following the goose in these lands of the Camino. I, I would call myself probably a nature mystic. You know, I, I already had that tendency because, I, you know, I grew up in the mountains and the Rockies and, and, and I love nature. And I mean, everyone does, you know, but it, it really gave me a sense of, you know, that the world is, is quite vibrant and alive and interconnected. Mm -hmm. And so that was there with me. But when I started following the goose on the Camino, it made me pay much more attention to the interconnectedness of everything. And I, I became much more alert 
walking the Camino and I started seeing much more in the natural world and even where it emerged with the human-made world, these sacred chapels with these natural landscapes. So it just reinforced this sense of, of wonder and beauty of being out there and walking and, and being present, you know, just like what all the spiritual traditions really say is get yourself in present time and you'll start noticing interesting things. Mm. If you don't, you're going to miss, <laughs> you know. I don't know if that answers the question. No, that's that's great. I, you know, part of it is I sometimes struggle with what is the the proper vocabulary to use because the the terminology we have is so limited, right? Like we have yeah. religious and spiritual and, you know, pagan, yeah. I don't know. Right? We don't have we don't have a lot of options. And I was thinking about it when I was reading your book because it brought me back to when I first started reading about the Camino back in like 2001 when it seemed like a number of the the popular books at that moment would be under the the larger umbrella of like new age esoteric you know Shirley MacLaine Paulo Coelho Elena Viva like one of the first big pilgrim memoirs that circled around where i think is where i first encountered the goose yeah that is i think that's where i first read it in a english language camino memoir yeah yeah so the, you know those had varying effects upon me as a reader but one thing that always made me somewhat uneasy when I would read works of that genre was it felt like, and this might be my own prejudices at work, it felt like a pseudo-historical approach to the material. And my willing suspension of disbelief has its limits. So one of the things that I find interesting about your approach is that you are a trained and disciplined anthropologist and you're navigating these overlooked or obscured traditions. And so I'm wondering, when you're trying to approach this as both the keen-eyed intellectual and also <laughs> the, the human who is engaging with the world around you, how do you go about discerning or determining what has the air of like truth to it from all of these fragments of myth and stone? I'm so glad you asked this question because I am constantly aware of the grave importance, the very serious importance of sourcing everything and making sure it's it's a sound source. And we're in the realm now of folklore and religion. So these are already, whatever one wants to say about it, these are already in the, the human imagination. I mean, uh, the legends of St. James, they're in the human imagination. We don't even have historical texts for them, except for the legends that were written down, you know, like mm -hmm. what in the seventh century, sixth century. But by then they were already orally being spread around and somebody wrote them down. And so I'm very aware of, you know, I'm, I'm in an area where truth is very relative. It's very <laughs> subjective. So I thought, well, I want to distinguish between mm, what I'm experiencing, my truth and my, my experience through this material from what I'm finding that's been documented by other people, that there is, there is art history, there is archaeology, there is folklore and the stories. And these are all, again, created by humans. So it is a subjective truth, all of it. But that truth is separate from me. You know, I can't, I'm a latecomer in all of that. And, and I'm, I'm an archaeologist in a sense, or a historian journeying into why did people create these stories and why would stonemasons then engrave these birds you know on on medieval churches 
And why are these these folk tales that we now, I mean, Mother Goose comes into play in this too. Mother Goose became one of the geese, you know, or, or a very important goose. She's representing this old idea of this bird having been pretty significant to humans across U Eurasia and having been given already potentially prehistoric associations with a bird that has divine connections, however divine was defined <laughs> so long ago. And so what I wanted to do was excavate that material of that human creation in its relationship with the natural world and how it had made meaning out of that natural world and elevated some parts of the natural world into a higher realm, hmm. like a goose that is an animal just like the snake that is very good at navigating many different levels. You know, it, it can be on the earth or almost subterranean. It lays eggs on the ground. It, it is a master of the water and it's also a master of the air. And so this was also something I started finding in folklore and in cross-cultural shamanic studies and anthropology that, you know, certain animals that can navigate in many different levels or, or media or elements are, are the ones that tend to get elevated in, in our associations, with a spiritual association. And when I set out, you know, I first said, I really want to look into what's going on with the goose on the Camino. So I devoted one Camino, one Camino I thought was all it would take, you know, <laughs> oh, oh, heavens, you know, <laughs> that was naive. And it wound up taking three. And these were three really devoted to paying attention, not only to as I was walking and, and looking at the churches and all their, their iconography and engravings and gathering the local folk tales and talking to locals about their, the, the lore and history of a place, you know, really, I was just documenting it, just like, you know, field notes and being out in the field and, and notebooks and notebooks and notebooks full of all of this. And then looking into the history and the archaeology and the art history not documenting it all, writing down the sources where I found them, making sure, you know, they were vetted, that they were legitimate, well-researched sources and all of that. And what I didn't expect was that I was going to start getting pulled in to this sort of quest on a personal level. I thought it was really an intellectual thing. Hmm. And I was going at it like the scholar, you know, just documenting all of the places people mention this and looking at all of the historical sources or archaeological sources. What I didn't expect was as I was starting to look for signs of the goose on the Camino, that I was going to become very much like those pilgrims I had talked to who said they were on an initiatory path. And I, I think it's because there is some kind of very cool organic process in place that when you start doing something like that, it starts working on you on, on different somatic and, and mental levels. You already have pretty rich, I think most people have pretty rich dreams on the Camino just for the fact of simplifying life and walking every day and being absolutely exhausted at the end of the day. But my dreams started just resonating with also this deeper symbolism that I'd been looking at while I was awake. And so I found myself becoming one of the initiates and I didn't expect that. So, and that's of course in the journey of the way of the wild goose too. Yeah, if you seek, you shall find. Yeah. There's something about the intentional pursuit of something that opens you up to receiving something deeper. Yes. Yes. You also have a great deal of expertise on the, the realm of the prehistoric. You've written about 
Neanderthals in uh, on other <laughs> occasions, and they show up in this book as well. And then about the resonance of tapping into these ancient threads along this pursuit. My first response when reading about like early humans is like, that's cool. That's interesting. And, you know, they don't have email or toilet paper. So what's the relevance? But like, <laughs> clearly there's there's something timeless that is in play here. So from your perspective, as someone who has reckoned with the earliest forms of humanity, what is the relevance? Why is that something that we should be attentive to in the 21st century? From an evolutionary perspective, biologically, we still have largely the same body. <laughs> you know, it, it hasn't changed that quickly, even with all our technology. And one of the most ancient and fundamental and primal things we can do is walk. You know, that is the old way of getting around. And I think part of the relevance, especially if you want to connect it to the Camino, is, you know, when you walk the way our ancestors used to walk, you know, you're not relying on anything other than the motor power of your own feet to get around. It does change you physically and mentally. And it changes your perception of things. And you see things differently. And you, I would say, see things more widely and deeply, potentially, because you're not flitting past a landscape, you know, in a blink of an eye, I'm missing a lot. And I think that's a big part of the relevance is we still are at our very root in our bones and muscle and minds, our brains, our, our deep ancient ancestors. We have changed in certain ways, you know, evolution marches along, but it marches along at such a slow pace compared to our, our technology. And I think the relevance is we're still back there in that sense, and we can tap back into it, at least on certain physical and mental ways. And there's ways we'll never, ever understand what it was like to be a Neanderthal or an early modern human. I want to ask you one more question under the, the large umbrella of, of spirituality and belief, and then I have a few other assorted questions to follow up with about your book. One of the nice things about the current state of Camino literature is people can find books on the Camino from any angle. And so if you want to have a really like religious focus on the Camino, you can find those pilgrim journals. And if you want like the secular, <laughs> like drinking and partying and, and having a good time across the Camino, you can find those memoirs. And, you know, it's, it's all out there, you know, it's not like yeah. 2001, 2002. The downside is kind of like the same as the downside to the internet, which is when you have every option out there, you can just home in on a particular slice of it that resonates like most directly to you and shut out the others. So I'm thinking about the fact that when people read about this book and or listen to this conversation, there might be a subsection of the audience that's like, I'm more secular. I'm not as interested in the more spiritual aspects mm -hmm. of the walk. Or a religious person who says, I'm not interested in the non-Christian or uh, more esoteric aspects of the walk. And so they might shift their right. focus. From your perspective, what would you hope that someone who's not immediately drawn to the book, who doesn't normally wrestle with these kinds of themes when thinking about the Camino, what would you hope that they could get from your book? I, I hope they get an appreciation for, you know, the Camino has many layers to it. It has time layers. It has social cultural layers. 
I mean, all kinds of layers. It's really a layer cake, but especially in, in time depth. Long before the Camino existed and one continuous road across northern Spain existed, there was this landscape that a lot of our predecessors, human predecessors, were drawn to. You know, part of it is because the Ice Age locked out a lot of the rest of, you know, northern Europe. But this was a very rich landscape. And so there's, there's a lot of time depth and a lot of layers of human presence here. And it's still a very varied landscape with a lot of cultures. And I'd hope they just feel like that's a part of everyone's inheritance. Everyone who walks the Camino, that's a part of our inheritance. It's a part of the human patrimony. It's part of the natural world's patrimony. And I would love for them to just get that richness. And I was really made a point. I mean, you know, when you, when you want to do something well scientifically, you basically say, here are all the components. You can go look them up. You can set up your own experiment. And so, you know, I, you know, I make sure to mention, you know, the sources the, where I'm getting my information. So anyone can go find that, read it, come away with their own conclusions with it, or, you know, come away with a, a different angle on it, whatever. So it's, it's, it's all there. And I hope they'll see that this is a big, rich conversation. And it's a part of this incredible legacy and inheritance that we have. And there, there's new layers being laid on it. You know, now the modern Camino is putting its layers on it. The locals who live on the Camino are adding their layers to it. So I'd really love for them to get that. I think a lot about how glad I am that when I first started approaching the Camino, I, I didn't have the luxury of choice, that I, I was forced to grab onto any English language memoirs that existed at the <laughs> time because there weren't that many. And it immediately forced me to come to terms with the Camino as this diverse melting pot of very different ways of conceptualizing the experience or making meaning from the experience. Similarly, I, I think sometimes now when I go on intersect one of the main routes and I see mostly English speaking pilgrims gathering together and most, you know, French pilgrims gathering together and siloing off by language in a way that wasn't possible in, you know, 2002, 2004. I worry that we're losing something, some of that intermixing of different perspectives that I, I think is so valuable on pilgrimage. You know, I worry about that too. And then I step back and remind myself that, okay, you know, back in the heyday of the Camino, you know, always you know, our touchstone, right? Let's go back to the 11th and 12th century. Oh my God, there were people who said, my God, the Camino is so crowded. You know, I mean, who is it? The ambassador from the Sultan of Morocco was trying to pass his horse along the trail on a mission, you know, and, and he wrote, you know, so we have this document that the trail is so crowded, I can hardly pass with my horse, you know, and I'm thinking, dang, that sounds like, you know, July right now. <laughs> and then I think, you know, you read Domenico Laffy, his account from the 17th century, and he's always looking for the Italians to talk to. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, you know, in the Middle Ages, pilgrims also, you know, wandered in their cultural and linguistic groups. You know, the first guidebook, right? The Camino, the Codex Calixtin is book five by just potentially Amiri Picot, you know, who's from the Poitou area of France in the 12th century. It, it's just so snarky, you know, anyone who's not from Poitou, you know, is not as good, <laughs> you know. And so I think it was already there, you know, that sort of clustering into your, your comfort zone, your, your compatriots and your language. And I, I, so when I get to that, when I worry about what's becoming of the Camino today, I remember it's like, okay, that has always been with the Camino. 
And then also what's also still always been with the Camino and we can still find it. It's just not as loud are the people who are trying to talk to each other, you know, across languages. They're just not as obvious. That was a very polite way of telling me to shove my back in my day rant. (laughs) Well, it's mine too, because I can get that way as well, especially when you're on the Camino during a really busy time and you see all that going on and, and it starts feeling a little bit like Disneyland in its, where's the pilgrimage portion of this program, you know? Uh, I can sometimes get that way. And then I remind myself, okay, all right. And this is for me. This is not for you. This is for me. I feel like there's that debate about pilgrimage and true pilgrimage and who's a true pilgrim. And I realize it's a conversation everyone at some point probably feels compelled or wants to or needs to have because they're trying to find their own place on the Camino. Mm -hmm. And I just remind myself for myself that to judge another person's Camino is making me immediately, I I drop out of the running for even being a pilgrim. (laughs) But that's just for me. This is just for me. So I try to be fair-minded about this. Okay, well, well, what were they doing in the 12th century? All right. They were as messy about this as we are right now. My main point is that the secular people should buy your book. Thank you. (laughs) And I hope the religious people will too. Yeah. And that's, I think my main thing is I, I, this probably does come across as patronizing. I just, I think we can all work harder to uh, shove ourselves outside of our varied comfort zones. And of course, the, the the mere act of grabbing the backpack and setting forth on the road is is a huge leap for a lot of people. I totally agree. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of times that the, the book focuses on three different pilgrimages. And I want to just touch base on that mm-hmm. for a second. Can you briefly describe like what each of those three pilgrimages was, like the arc of each? Sure. I, the first pilgrimage devoted to following geese is I had been walking the Camino many years, many times before, but this is when I said, I want to get to the goose, the root of the goose thing. The first one was actually very funny because I was meeting a friend and normally I walk solo, but this is a, a friend who she proposed, do you want to walk a route in France? And oh, by the way, I'm really interested in walking in the other direction. We had both walked the Camino, so we were we were really game. It was like we we knew what the other journey was, you know, crossing the Pyrenees and then walking across northern Spain, which I I love. But we decided we're going to meet in Saint Jean Pied de Port and walk in the opposite direction, walk on the Arles route, which actually doesn't go through Saint Jean Pied de Port. So we used the Voie du Piedmont, the the foothills bridging trail that connects Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port to the other staging town on the French side of the Pyrenees of um, Oloron-Sainte-Marie. That's where the Aragon route begins to cross over the Saint-Port Pass in the Pyrenees. But what we were going to do is go Saint-Jean to Oloron and then pick up the Arles route, which is the southernmost French route of the four main routes through France of the Camino or the Chemin Saint-Jacques and walk in the opposite direction, make our way toward Toulouse. And that one was really, I was all gung-ho because that, as I mentioned earlier, you know, this was like deep, rich, thick goose territory, both economically and traditionally and folklorically. And there are some really wild Romanesque churches on that route. So, you know, that have some iconography that's a little bit different. That's what that was about, going the other direction. And then the second Camino 
pilgrimage and the third pilgrimage in the book are both starting in Saint Jean Pied de Port and making their way over the Pyrenees and walking the traditional Camino Frances. The middle one was one that really threw me for a loop because that pilgrimage wound up the Camino Frances being completely knocked off trail. And in, after Framista, I left the Camino Frances and went north in pursuit of other things, but always geese and the folklore. And in this time, uh, Neanderthals as well, which readers will have to find out why Neanderthals <laughs> play into this. And they already had made a you know special appearance in, in, just before Burgos at Atapuerca. And the third one is a full-on, you know, San Jean-Pied-de-Port, cross the Pyrenees, walk the Camino Frances all the way to, you know, Santiago de Compostela and Finistan and Muxia. That, as I mentioned before, I didn't know I needed this many pilgrimages devoted to looking for the goose signs to really make sense of why has the goose been so associated with the Camino de Santiago and why would a parish priest in Logroño, who is really the main reason why that game board is inlaid in the square there, design this game board and say it is associated with the Camino de Santiago and pilgrims should know this is a spiritual walk that they're on. I didn't know, you know, in the second pilgrimage that I thought by then, surely two pilgrimages, I should know everything there is to have a general full picture sense of what this goose symbolism is on the Camino. And I didn't. And it took the third one. And somewhere, maybe midway through the third pilgrimage recounted in this book, I started realizing, ah, okay, I think I'm getting it. And now I know, you know, I I could bring all the folklore and the archaeology and the experience of walking the Camino and all the engravings in the churches on the Camino Frances, especially. And then place names of, you know, goose and gander place names on the Camino Frances together into a bigger understanding. And by then it was all starting to work its curious initiative quest-like magic on me and in a way I hadn't seen coming. And the, the third walk is also primarily the research for the moon guidebook as well. Is that correct? That's right. That's when I got my, my commission to, to create that guidebook. And so I was working on the first edition of the guidebook. And so it, it weaves in also just, you know, the trials and tribulations of a guidebook writer. <laughs> there's, there's just no rest for the wicked, right? You know, yeah. it's just constant, constant work, which was probably also a really good initiatory tool as far as you get so tired, you start seeing things without tr- trying too hard to think them through. And it also made for some wackier dreams. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one of the things that I'm wondering about with all of that is for most of us, our first experience on pilgrimage is a linear pilgrimage from wherever we start to whatever the shrine is for many people, Santiago de Compostela. It's walking straight through destination in mind, day by day progress towards the goal. Yeah. And so in this case, you have three very different kinds of pilgrimage. You have one walking in the opposite direction in France. <laughs> you have a second one that goes completely off course, ends in a completely different destination, a destination of singular interest to you on this occasion. And then on the third, it is more traditional, like linear towards the destination, but with multiple you know days spent continuing to do research in particular locations. So you're you're not with like a Camino family going consistently stage by stage. Your attention, right. you're like, you're on pilgrimage, but you're also working. 
And so your attention is different. And so I just think what's cool about this is that you have these varied experiences with pilgrimage that I think could be insightful about how different approaches to pilgrimage can either like still be pilgrimage or like can offer different benefits. So I'm wondering, as you look back on these, like what lessons do you derive about how different approaches to pilgrimage can play out for us? Well, for, for that first pilgrimage, it's so important, isn't it, to get to Santiago de Compostela? Mm -hmm. Because that is, you know, that is the traditional goal. And that is what makes us feel like galvanizes us into becoming pilgrims. But that said, the best answer I've ever heard to what is it to be a pilgrim is not necessarily getting to Santiago de Compostela or Mecca, or Rome, or Jerusalem, you know, it's actually what's happening in the process of being on the road, in, in, the, in the journey. And the medieval poet Sadi, a, a mystical poet from, from Iran, was it 13th or 14th century? I think 13th. He used to grouse about people who went on pilgrimage and came back unchanged. Mm. And he was like, how can you possibly go on pilgrimage and not be changed? And I thought, to be changed... That to me is like the deepest, truest definition of having gone on pilgrimage and become a pilgrim. And I learned that through this process of, I started realizing that it's what, what you're doing with that time that you're on the road. Are you opening yourself up to the unknown, to talking to people you will never meet any other way, even if they don't speak your language, to asking for help when you need help, to trusting that you're going to find a place to sleep, even when it's pigeon hunting season and everything shuts down in the Pyrenees, you know, just, you know, that first pilgrimage going the opposite direction. And so I think is that the holy goal is more the interior one and the adventure on the trail where the exterior and the interior meet. And each day you are changed by it. And usually that change, I, I, I actually don't know of any negative change. It's always when on the pilgrimage trail, I, I always feel whatever change comes through, no matter what ordeal, it winds up being pretty positive in the end. It is like a gift being given. So have I been changed? And that to me feels more like I've been on pilgrimage. But I also, you know, will cast ahead and say, well, I wonder where, what my Santiago de Compostela is going to be on this walk. You know, yeah. like we didn't know in the, going the other direction, we were walking away from Santiago. Was it going to be Toulouse? Was it going to be the city of Osh? Was it going to be something entirely differently? In the middle pilgrimage, what was it going to be? It wound up being Biarritz, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I did a full loop practically. And that became my holy Santiago, which readers will have to read to find out how I landed in that one. <laughs> it does stand out to me that the second one almost feels the most significant and profound because with the the first one, you and your your friend were walking and the destination would sort out. You knew it was kind of unclear to begin with. You had a direction. The third one, you very clearly had a destination. You had to walk it. You had a book to write. I, right, I had a book to write, yeah. <laughs> the, the second one, though, when you not only don't go all the way to Santiago, but when you choose to leave the route and go mm -hmm. in a different direction, there's something really significant about that choice. Because like one of the nice things about pilgrimage is like, we kind of abdicate choice 
when we go on pilgrimage, right? That we follow the arrows. Right. And like, you have to decide where to sleep each night. But over the course of those five weeks, you just follow the yellow arrows. You don't have to make as many choices as you <laughs> do in your normal life. And so in, yeah. in the case of that pilgrimage, you you made a choice. Something was pushing you to go in a different direction. And that just seems significant. Yeah. It's cool to hear you say that because it really was stepping off into the unknown much more than ever before and maybe made me feel more like what a pilgrim might have felt like when they were leaving their front door and before they hit the main tributary routes, you know, that flowed in to the Camino Frances or the Norte or the Via de la Plata, that they were, they had to sort of figure out how to get there. And along the way, people still would help them. I mean, I think there were people who also hindered them, <laughs> but you know, in this case, in this modern pilgrimages, I was amazed at how much I was going off into completely unmapped territory as far as doing the pilgrimage that particular way and how locals kept popping out their window and going, hey, peregrina, you know, and they recognized me as a pilgrim. And I'm thinking, I'm still a pilgrim, but I'm way out here somewhere between the Norte and the Frances. And then I discovered, well, I actually had landed on a tributary route of the Camino like you do, <laughs> and you walk anywhere in Spain, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and I had food poisoning, and I was still, you know, clearing through that. So I really felt vulnerable. There's one other thing that I want to ask you about, just because I had an immediate visceral reaction in the book. Why do you hate photographs, Bibi? I'm being intentionally provocative there, but I'll, I'll, you, you have a very powerful moment, which will now cause me to never delete a photo on my camera again, um, <laughs> when you accidentally delete every single photo on your camera, which is horrifying, like my heartbeat is accelerating yeah. as, I, as I say that. And the passage uh, in your book, you, you write, as you reckon with this, I realized that in this shallow ambition of mine, I had committed a thousand and one minor thefts, commodifying beauty, places, and people. I had committed as many thefts of my own integrity as I had forgotten to be present. So first off, this discussion does not impose judgment on anybody else taking pictures. I feel like that uh, caveat's necessary. But from your perspective, going through that experience, looking back on that experience, what are you thinking about with regards to yeah. photos on pilgrimage? Yeah, you know what? For the record, I don't hate photographs. As a matter of fact, <laughs> when people read that passage, they'll find that I love them so much that, that I put way too much on the line for them. <laughs> so let's clear that up first. <laughs> but I do like how you're being very provocative because it is it is an issue of, you know, at the time, and it really was a hundred, a thousand and one photos, because as my camera said, deleting it, it told me that it was deleting a thousand and one photos. And I just thought the irony of the thousand and one nights, because I was seeing those photos as stories, stories that I would later get to tell. There would be something in there that I would then, you know, turn into an essay. And, and I was caught up in this whole world as a freelance writer that these were going to be part of, you know, the essays that I was going to pitch and sell to glossy colored magazines, you know, and this whole thing was going on and in trying to prove myself as a writer and what they taught me as you know all thousand and one of them disappeared and I, I lost the the first week and a half of, of that pilgrimage which had a lot of rich and irreplaceable moments was that I hadn't been fully present I was so caught up in documenting the experience to write about it later that I 
probably missed a lot more than was captured in the photographs. And I realized that the whole reason for being there was to be there and be present. And so they did, they started, I realized they were like minor thefts, you know, especially the ones that you take where you're just what a quaint, you know, cafe and those people off in the distance sitting, sipping their coffee and you want to capture that image, but you didn't ask their permission either to take that photo. And instead you could have gone by and talked to them. And I realized that the stories that I, that I wanted to tell, this was the personal outcome, have to be deeper than these minor thefts. You know, they have to capture more of what was really going on and pay more attention. But I still, I love taking photographs. <laughs> and as a guidebook author, I mean, let's be honest, the digital camera is a great gift to just photograph everything that you're going to later need to document in the guidebook and let people know about. It's a great way of note taking. Yeah. There's another scene in the, the book, in the second pilgrimage in Torres del Rio with the caretaker of that Holy Sepulchre church. And she wanted people to pay a euro to come in and see the spectacular church, which it's so worth more than a euro to be able to go in. And that was for the upkeep of the church, for the electricity and repointing the stones, whatever it was needed. And she was just so upset with people. And a lot of people would just flit inside, and all pilgrims, they would flit inside the doorway and quickly with their cam and take a shot of the magnificent dome that's a replica of the prayer niche in the mosque and cathedral of Cordoba, and then flee. And, and she just thought, you know, my God, you know, it, it felt like a double theft to her, that they wouldn't give the euro and that they would be so cheeky as to right in front of her just, you know, do a shoot and run. Mm. And that's also I was reminded is like, yeah, Presence is really important on a lot of levels. It is interesting to me in the same way, well, maybe not in the same way, in a parallel way, perhaps, to you being attuned to the goose and looking very intentionally for it. One of the things I've found over the years is either because of doing the guidebook or because I want to like have a bunch of pictures of the students who I'm traveling with on the trip, being actively focused on shooting pictures in a strange way, makes me more present because it makes me more attentive to detail. Yeah. And if my impulse sometimes is to rush, it stops me and forces me to yeah. think about a scene and how to look at it from different angles yeah. and see it differently. So I see your point. It's, and it's one of those things where it can either be yeah. symptomatic of not being in the moment, or it can also be a tool that prompts us to see things more deeply. Isn't it a paradox? Because, you know, there are times where I'll refer to my photos and just the slant of light streaming into a plaza. It's like, I want to write about that. I want to, to, to evoke those senses in, in the reader so that I can drop them into the plaza and they're there themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that you didn't even notice maybe with the naked eye that is somehow preserved in a, in a, in a way that right. forces you to, to reevaluate or reimagine it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's not a, there's not a hard, fast conclusion or answer to this because still love photos, still going to take photos. <laughs> but what I did learn from that awful experience of accidentally deleting all the photos instead of just one <laughs> on my camera was that that day, I mean, I was just so bereft. There were photos of a 
an endangered Pyrenean frog that I had seen crossing the trail. And I had just stopped and watched it cross at a distance, you know, put my zoom lens on and took a few photos of it. And it was the size of a hazelnut. It was a tiny, gorgeous little frog. And the first thing I thought was the frog. I lost the frog. I'm never going to see that a frog like that again. Mm. Or the kind woman who, you know, let me take her photo. And we were at her, her front stoop and she was giving me a hug. And my friend clicked the photo and I thought I lost that photo. And I was just feeling all these little deaths and big deaths. And, you know, at the time it felt huge. And then after I just started, well, there was no way I was getting them back. And I started realizing the only way I was going to capture any of what I had lost was to sit down with my notebook and start writing all those details down. And I just sat and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I think that some of those details that I wrote in my notebook during that hour that I just did a download of every image that I remembered I lost and I started crying about, I wrote the details, is some of the most vivid and visceral writing that I've ever done. So I feel like it gave me that lesson to teach me there's many ways we can capture these, these moments and to do them appropriately in each given moment. And also realize that we can still have the photograph, but we can still use our words and never show that photograph to anyone <laughs> or vice versa. You know, I mean, yeah, good photographers know that. All right. I have one last question for you. A goose hunt has certain implications. I'm sure I'm not the first to note this. First definition I find when looking online is uh, a foolish and hopeless pursuit of something unattainable. <laughs> <laughs> what was unattainable that you were pursuing on your goose hunt? Well, you know, and it, it goes with the saying, the wild goose chase. We use that for the same reason, you know, the same uh, kind of situation. You know, in a, in a sense that there is ever going to be a conclusion to this, that there's always another goose. There's always another cool clue. And I do feel, you know, that what I capture in this book gives a pretty fair, full picture of what this, this, strange and wacky and cool medieval mystery, these, these many layers of lore on the Camino is. But as soon as, you know, it went to the publisher, I found another source that had something so fabulous, you know, it's like, I wish I could have included that. And then the reader will probably be glad that I didn't because there's only so much you can pack into a book and keep it a narrative. <laughs> but I think that was the unattainable stuff is, or as Father Ojeda, the parish priest in Logroño, or my friend, my octogenarian friend, Bernadette in Sarlat in southwestern France, who are both feature strongly in this book, will tell me or would tell me and will tell anyone who asks, once something comes to a conclusion, it starts again. You know, once you go through one cycle, you begin again. You just hope that you've learned something more. So the next time around the, the track, you have some more wisdom to apply to the situation. You're always going to be growing and learning. So in that sense, it's unattainable, but that's probably a good thing. If it were attainable, we'd stop going on pilgrimage after the first one, right? Hmm, I think so. I think so. I hope that this book inspires many wild goose chases in the years ahead. 
Thank you very much, BB. Thanks for talking with me. Oh, thank you, Dave. It's always wonderful. Really appreciate it. You know, it is painful to find yourself having an old man shaking his fist at the cloud moment. But there I was in that conversation with BB, criticizing those pilgrims today who are not getting out of their comfort zone. <laughs> it just happened so fast. Maybe you can empathize. One minute you're being all enlightened and tolerant and saying that everyone walks their own Camino. And then the next you're throwing around the should word. Given that BB and I spoke in late December, I've had a month to dwell on that moment, and it occurred to me after a while that the trap lies in translating what worked for me into what you should do, saying that I got a great deal out of being in an international group, navigating across language, benefiting from non-North American perspectives is true. That's all true. Saying that I know best and you should walk your Camino that way is presumptuous and patronizing and arrogant and unseemly. So let's try this again. Something I love about pilgrimage is that it separates me from my typical frame of reference. The assumptions and expectations I carry, the blind spots I harbor, the conclusions I leap to, these are all culturally embedded. It's not to say that all Americans think the same way. <laughs> we certainly do not think the same way. <laughs> my, my goodness, we do not. But there are some defaults hardwired into us. Pilgrimage is a rare opportunity when we can build relationships with people of all different national backgrounds in a context where we are more open, more willing to talk about things that are true, that matter. There's a generosity of spirit that runs through everything. And, you know, for that reason, it's probably fair to acknowledge that even conversations that are siloed by nationality have the potential to be more frank than those at home. Some of my deepest learning about myself, though, has only come through removing myself from my normal context in order to lay bare the assumptions I carry through life. How can I fully understand home without leaving it? Perspective fundamentally shapes understanding. In a lot of ways, it's harder. I recognize that. There are days on the Camino when I'm tired, when having to use my brain in the more intensive way needed to communicate in Spanish or, God help me, French or Italian, feels more exhausting than even walking another 10 kilometers. There are conversations that are just easier and better to navigate in English and days when those are much more comfortable. But my pilgrimage experience has been enriched over the years by reaching across those linguistic and cultural differences. I recommend it. It's been good for me. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Bibi Barami for talking with me about The Way of the Wild Goose. You can find Bibi at bbibarami.weebly.com. That's B-A-H-R-A-M-I. And you can find her books available through online bookstores everywhere. 
All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening. Back next week. Stay tuned. Maybe my baby.